You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Tommy Orange. This program originally aired in 2019. Thank you, Patricia and Red Knot. Um, I don't know how you found that song, because um, I had songs on SoundCloud a couple years ago, and then I uh, locked them all, so. But I appreciate it. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about, I'm going to read from parts that came out in the first year of writing the book, and kind of talk about um, some of the background of where the stories came from. So uh, thank you all for coming out. That's not good for sound, sorry. Um, so I worked in the Native American community in Oakland for almost a decade. And um, I did anything from data entry to office manager to media coordinator, which basically was like designing all of the flyers, which is the worst kind of um, job to have if you don't love graphic design with a passion, which I didn't. Um, but one of the things that I did was work um, on a, su a youth suicide prevention grant. And um, from this first part of that I'm going to read, um, my wife was the project director and toward the end of the grant she decided to get a, an author's reading series together. This was um, the end of 2012. And um, she got like published authors, and um, and then she threw me in there, even though like I could not have been called an author at all. Um, and you know I don't uh, I don't love public speaking in general. I'm getting used to it, um, but reading in front of native youth is the scariest. Um, <laughs> They're just not easily impressed by anything, and um, they have their own reasons for being there that usually come with the incentives that we build into the programming. Um, it's not to hear authors read. <laughs> but we were at Cal Berkeley, and um, so I thought of the idea for this novel in the, at the end of 2010, right after finding out I was going to be a father, and didn't start writing into it until the beginning of 2012, because I was becoming a father and still working full-time. And um, so that first year, a lot of the characters, all the characters that I'm going to read from tonight, um, they came out the first year, along with a lot of other characters that never made it past the first year. But um, this piece of writing that I'm going to read to you came out the first year. And it's not all of it, but part of what still exists in the book. Um, I read to those native youth that night. and. Um, they were really moved by it because it felt like they were, it was speaking to their experience. And that really gave me a lot of energy to keep going on the novel because um, to reach them, as I said, um, it's not easy to. And so the fact that I did, um, I think, kept me, kept me writing for, for years after. <clears throat> this is from the prologue. Um, the, the sub... There's all these subtitles to the, the sections of the prologue. This is called Urbanity. 
Urban Indians were the generation born in this city. We've been moving for a long time, but the land moves with you like memory. An urban Indian belongs to the city, and cities belong to the earth. Everything here is formed in relation to every other living and non-living thing from the earth, all our relations. The process that brings anything to its current form, chemical, synthetic, technological, or otherwise, doesn't make the product not a product of the living earth. Buildings, freeways, cars, are these not of the earth? Were they shipped in from Mars, the moon? Is it because they're processed, manufactured, or that we handle them? Are we so different? Were we at one time not something else entirely, homo sapiens, single-celled organisms, space dust, unidentifiable pre-bang quantum theory? Cities form in the same way as galaxies. Urban Indians feel at home walking in the shadow of a downtown building. We came to know the downtown Oakland skyline better than we did any sacred mountain range. The redwoods in the Oakland hills better than any other deep wild forest. We know the sound of the freeway better than we do rivers. The howl of distant trains better than wolf howls. We know the smell of gas and freshly wet concrete and burned rubber better than we do the smell of cedar or sage or even fry bread which isn't traditional, like reservations aren't traditional, but nothing is original. Everything comes from something that came before, which was once nothing. Everything is new and doomed. We ride buses, trains, and cars across, over, and under concrete plains. Being Indian has never been about returning to the land. The land is everywhere or nowhere. So that's the end of the, the prologue. Um, Another character that happened the first year, um, his name is Dean Oxendine, and the premise to his chapter and for his position in the book is that he's making a, a documentary about Native people living in Oakland. Um, so like, how did they end up in Oakland? How long have they been there? What's life like to, and what's it like to be Native in Oakland? Um, I'm just gonna read a little bit from this, but he goes in front of a, a nonprofit panel for a cultural arts grant and um, I did this before I started writing the book, um, or like maybe concurrent with writing the book at the beginning. And so a lot of this came from my own experience, but then it diverges because he got the grant, I got the grant, he got $5,000, he started doing the project. I never did the project, it was just the book, and it was a way to supplement my income. And um, I apologize to them at the end of the book for, <laughs> only doing the fictional version of the project they gave me a lot of money for. <clears throat> Dean Oxendine takes the dead escalator two steps at a time at the Fruitvale station. When he makes it up to the platform, the train he thought he was missing comes to a stop on the opposite side. A single drop of sweat drips down the side of his face from out of his beanie. Dean wipes the sweat with his finger, then pulls the beanie off and shakes it out, mad like the sweat came from it and not his head. He looks down the tracks and breathes out a breath he watches rise, then disappear. He smells cigarette smoke, which makes him want one, except they tire him out. He wants a cigarette that invigorates. He wants a drug that works. He refuses to drink, smokes too much weed, nothing works. 
Dean looks across the tracks at graffiti scrawled on the wall in the little crawl space underneath the platform. He'd been seeing it for years all over Oakland. He'd thought of the name in middle school, but had never really done anything with it. Lens. The first time Dean saw someone tag, he was on the bus. It was raining. The kid was in the back. Dean saw that the kid saw that Dean looked back at him. One of the first things Dean learned when he first started taking the bus in Oakland was that you don't stare. You don't even glance. But you don't totally not look either. Out of respect, you acknowledge. You look and don't look. Anything to avoid the question, what you looking at? There is no good answer for this question. Being asked this question means you already fucked up. Dean waited for his moment, watched the kid tag, and the condensation on the bus window three letters, EMT. He understood right away that it meant empty, and he liked the idea that the kid was writing it in the condensation on the window in the empty space between drops, and also because it wouldn't last, just like tagging and graffiti don't. The head of the train, then its body appear, wind around the bend toward the station. Self-loathing hits you fast sometimes. He doesn't know for a second if he might jump, get down there on the tracks, wait for that fast weight to come get rid of him. He'd probably jump late, bounce off the side of the train, and just fuck up his face. On the train, he thinks of the looming panel of judges. He keeps picturing them 20 feet up, staring down at him with long, wild faces in the style of Ralph Steadman, old white men, all noses and robes. They'll know everything about him hate him intimately, with all the possible knowledge about his life available to them. They'll see immediately how unqualified he is. They'll think he's white, which is only half true, and so ineligible for a cultural arts grant. Dean is not recognizably native. He is ambiguously non-white. Over the years, he'd been assumed Mexican plenty, been asked if he was Chinese, Korean, Japanese, Salvadoran once, but mostly the question came like this. What are you? Everyone on the train is looking at their phones, into them. He smells piss and at first thinks it's him. He's always feared he'll find out that he smelled like piss and shit his whole life without knowing it, that everyone's been afraid to tell him. Like Kevin Farley from the fifth grade who ended up killing himself the summer of their junior year in high school when he found out. He looks to his left and sees an old man slumped down in his seat. The old guy comes to and sits up straight, then moves his arms around like he's checking to make sure all his stuff is still with him, even though there's nothing there. Dean walks to the next train car. He stands at the doors and looks out the window. The train floats alongside the freeway next to cars. Each of their speeds is different. The speed of the cars is short, disconnected, sporadic. Dean and the train slither along the tracks as one movement in speed. There's something cinematic about their variable speeds, like a moment in a movie that makes you feel something for reasons you can't explain. Something too big to feel underneath and inside, too familiar to recognize, right there in front of you at all times. Dean puts his headphones on, shuffles the music on his phone, skips several songs, and stays on There There by Radiohead. The hook is just because you feel it doesn't mean it's there. Before going 
underground between the Fruitvale and Lake Merritt stations. Dean looks over and sees the word, that name again, Lens, there in the wall, right before he goes under. <clears throat> so this last part is um, from the same grant that I referenced. Um, we took the youth to Alcatraz and we got elders who had been there um, during the occupation. And the writing of this novel from, so I don't know if you all know, but Native people took over Alcatraz from like 1969 to um, late 1971, I believe. Um, and um, we, we were able to get in contact with people that were there, and we had them tell stories to the youth. Um, and while I was there, I couldn't help but wonder what it would have been like to be a child, because a lot of um, activist parents brought their children over and they lived there and they slept in the cells. Um, so instead of writing sort of like a triumphant narrative about how um, we resisted the US government and temporarily took over a prison island, I thought, um, what, what would it have been like for kids? And coming from crazy idealist parents myself, I felt very much uh, more attuned to what that experience would have been like as opposed to a sort of righteous activist thing. So this character, who's a central character in the novel, um, Opal Viola Victoria Bearshield, she, her mom just sort of abruptly takes her sisters there and she brings her teddy bear two shoes. And um, <clears throat> where I'm reading from, her mom has just told her to go find her sister because she's running around with teens on the island. And she brings her teddy bear with her because she's sort of scared to go out there and find um, her sister alone. I found them by the shore closest to the Golden Gate. They were all over the rocks, pointing at each other and laughing in that wild, cruel way teenagers have about them. I told Two Shoes it probably wasn't such a good idea and that we should just go back. Sister, you don't have to worry. All these people, even these young ones over here, they're all our relatives, so don't be scared. Plus, if anyone comes after you, I'll jump down and bite their ankles. They would never expect that. I'll use my sacred bear medicine on them. It'll put them to sleep. It'll be like instantaneous hibernation. That's what I'll do, sister, so don't worry. Creator made me strong to protect you, Two Shoes said. I told Two Shoes to stop talking like an Indian. <laughs> I don't know what you mean by talking like an Indian, he said. You're not an Indian, T.S. You're a teddy bear. You know, we're not so different. Both of us got our names from pig brain men. Pig brain? Men with pigs for brains. Oh, meaning Columbus called you Indians. For us, it was Teddy Roosevelt's fault. How? He was hunting bear one time, but then found this real scraggly old hungry bear, and he refused to shoot it. Then in the newspapers, there was a comic about that hunting story that made it seem like Mr. Roosevelt was merciful, a real nature lover, that kind of thing. Then they made the little stuffed bear and named it Teddy's Bear. Teddy's Bear became Teddy Bear. What they didn't say was that he slit that old bear's throat. It's that kind of mercy 
they don't want you to know about. And how do you know about any of this? You gotta know about the history of your people, how you got to be here. That's all based on what people done to get you here. Us bears, you Indians, we've been through a lot. They tried to kill us, but then when you hear them tell it, they make history seem like one big heroic adventure across an empty forest. There were bears and Indians all over the place. Sister, they slit all our throats. Why do I feel like mom told us this already? I said. Roosevelt said, I don't go so far as to think that the only good Indians are dead Indians, but I believe nine out of every 10 are, and I shouldn't like to inquire too closely into the case of the 10th. Damn, T.S., that's messed up. I only heard the one about the big stick. That big stick is the lie about mercy. Speak softly and carry a big stick. That's what he said about foreign policy. That's what they used on us, bears and Indians both, foreigners on our own land. And with their big sticks, they marched us so far west we almost disappeared. And Two Shoes went quiet. That's the way it was with him. He either had something to say or he didn't. I could tell by what kind of shine I saw in the black of his eyes which one it was. I put two shoes behind some rocks and headed down to my sister. Thank you.
Well, Tommy Orange, thank you very much for being here for Writers on a New England Stage. We really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Thank you for The book me. is incredible. Um, and uh, we'll talk a lot about the book. But first, I wanted to start by talking about you and your life a little bit. Um, in the book, you have depictions of young boys hanging out, doing things young boys do, uh, various levels of parental supervision. And I wanted to ask you about, about your childhood and, and being young. Was that kind of how it was like for you? Yeah, it, the things that my parents did, um, they should be tried for. <laughs> Explain, what, what did they do? I should say that they didn't do. But they didn't do. <laughs> um, we just were allowed free reign of, of, of like parts of Oakland that were not they're even worse. I mean, they're better now, but they were not great then. Um, but I think a lot of people experienced that. It's a different time period. It's a different mind frame for parenting where helicoptering became normal and um, horrors of... Um, you know, child abduction and molestation became a little more normal in the news cycle. And so I understand why we, if we who are parents now are more paranoid. So I'm not, I'm not, I don't seriously judge my parents for it, but we really were allowed to roam the streets of Oakland um, as much as we wanted. Mm -hmm. Have you found that to be a good thing for your writing now? You have that experience to draw on? I mean, nothing bad happened, so it's good. <laughs> now that I'm still alive <laughs> um, and yeah sure some of those experience definitely informed uh, my characters mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to ask a question that was submitted by someone in the audience um, uh, not really a question uh, but uh, the, the, I guess a statement I'd love you to, to hear your thoughts on it uh, the, the statement is this book gave me permission for the first time in my life to be a biracial person who looks completely white. I can't tell you how much it means to me to understand how very many people are, are like me. Um, what do you think of that audience member's comment? Yeah, it's, it's a hard road for, for the ambiguously non-white or the ambiguously white or the non-ambiguous white who are biracial. There's, there's this whole like middle section of, of coming from different cultures and ethnic backgrounds that um, you know, the society wants to name and categorize as fast as possible and not have to deal with it. Um, and often that's like white dominant culture who wants to do that. And, but then even from specific cultural backgrounds, um, it, it stings especially more when, when you're considered white by the people you're from, even if you're half. Um, you know, one of my characters in the book um, claims that like I'm I'm as native as Obama is black, and we have the first black president, and like we have characters that are half the exact same amount that he's black who feel like they can't claim their native identity, and largely this has to do with and it, it, this is true of other cultures, but with native cultures because our population is so low and because we've we've there's a monolithic image of what we're supposed to look like that's sort of crushed the rest of us. Because our population's so low and we don't know what the spectrum of what Native people look like, look like, um, if we don't look a certain way, then we're, we're not Native. But like a person from Alaska whose skin is much more pale 
than other native tribes because of where they live looks a lot more, a lot different than somebody from Southern Florida who might be a Seminole, both experientially and facial structure and skin tone. Like our range of what we look like is, is a huge spectrum. And the fact that we don't, most people don't know that is related to lower population, which is related to massive genocide and disease and all the things that come with history. But it's especially painful when, when you're not allowed to be the thing you are um, for such insidious reasons and, and because, not only because of the, because of what happened in history, but, but the way that we've been, like if we're not this certain type of Indian, probably wearing feathers, uh, maybe a big nose. Uh, they just got rid of the Cleveland Indians ridiculous caricature, by the way, which is a, should be celebrated a little bit. <laughs> Your character, as you, as you just read uh, a moment ago, um, encountered the question, what are you? And I wanted to ask you if you've encountered that question, and if you have, what, what goes through your mind when you get a question like that? I think it's a kind of a normal question in Oakland because there's so many biracial families. On the block that I grew up on, every single family that I knew, every single friend that I had, and there was like seven different friends my age that I had, we were all biracial. So it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily always um, offensive. It was worse when I was mistaken for something else. In a, so in high school, um, I was called um, Chinese racial slurs. Mm -hmm. And I played hockey, and I was called Mexican racial slurs. I was never once called native racial slurs, and I sort of wanted to be in a weird way. <laughs> Just once to feel the specific rage that goes along with that. Hmm. Um, one more question about your childhood. Um, who, if anybody, told you uh, stories when you were a child? My dad was pretty reticent when growing up. Um, we didn't really grow up in a, reader, a reading family or a storytelling family. There were certain stories that my dad told about his childhood, and there was a, a massacre narrative that I thought was a massacre narrative for the longest time, because it's about the Sand Creek Massacre, which is a big part of Cheyenne history, um, that I only recently realized was my dad's naming story. So it wasn't like his morbid sort of curiosity or, you know, we have to remember what happened to us thing. It's like, this is how he got his Indian name. And it's related to a, a young boy saving one of our relatives. And an old tradition was to exchange names if you save somebody's life. So the story that I grew up, like the gruesome story about a massacre of mostly women, children, and elders was really just how he got his name. Wow. What was it like to hear that kind of story at such a young age? I couldn't process it then. I think, you know, hearing, knowing when I got older, like, I've heard this story the most of any other story. It definitely carries a weight with it. Mm -hmm. uh, at what point in your life did you um, discover that you really wanted to tell stories or, or be a novelist? Um, it was after, it's a story of sinking ships. Um, so roller hockey was my first dream of the thing I wanted to do. So in the 90s, 
uh, in, o in Oakland, it was a professional sport. They were the Oakland Skates. They played where the Warriors play now, and we would go to games, and it seemed like if I worked hard, it was a reasonable thing that would happen. And I played for like the junior team, um, or the equivalent of the junior team for that sport, and um, I got sponsored by a, co a company. They gave me equipment, like things, all, everything seemed like that could happen. And then at the end of the 90s, early 2000s, everyone was like, rollerblading's really dorky. <laughs> and everyone, everyone put their rollerblades in their closet or they sold them or just threw them in the garbage. And the sport died. Um, this is just a fact, and my dream did. And, um, and I became a musician and I was like out of high school, which I didn't have a good time in high school, but um, I became a musician uh, so I was never a reader, roller hockey was the thing. Became a musician and then I went to school for sound engineering. And um, I happened to go during this, so sinking ship number one was roller blading and roller hockey. Um, so I became a sound engineer, or I went to school for it, and this was right 2003 to 2004. And um, all of, most of my education there was analog recording. And this timed perfectly with the MP3 taking over <laughs> the world and analog recording becoming obsolete as a skill to know. And so I graduated and it was like, oh. <laughs> so sinking ship number two. And I got a job at a used bookstore. And I was, and I was just reading philosophy and religion because I'm like, what, I don't know what to do. <laughs> um, and I, I sort of stumbled into fiction. Like, I think she hired me because she needed to consolidate two big warehouses of books into one, and she, she could tell I could probably carry some books. <laughs> and so uh, I just sort of like fell in love with fiction by accident. But once I knew, I was completely convinced, and, um, and that was when, uh, it was like 2005, 2004, 2005 is when I, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And what novelists were you reading that made you say, wow, this is something I really want to try to do myself? Well, Kafka and Borges were the like, sort of bridge from philosophy and religion to fiction. But the two novels that I remember like really making me know that I wanted to write a novel were, um, so I was on a break from the bookstore and I was eating a donut and I was reading uh, Confederacy of Dunces. Okay. And the way that he mixes sadness and humor and philosophy and, um, and how like weird the whole novel is as, a, as an endeavor like as a structure, I just loved, I didn't know that was a thing. Like I didn't read, I didn't care about school. Um, and then Sylvia Plath's Bell Jar was also another one. Also infused with sadness, they both committed suicide. That's not what I was into, but um, it, I think part of their despair and them being able to turn it into sort of this artful form and this medium was a, a draw for me. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a really, I mean, as, as we know, right, this is a very heavy book as, Books like The Bell Jar, of course, are as well. Um, how did you decide on the structure of There, There? Um, because some of these stories, I mean, it, it, would, it would not be a stretch to imagine that this is also kind of a short story collection. But it, because they're linked, it's definitely a novel. But some of these stories can stand on their own. How do you imagine the structure here? So, so I thought of the idea for the novel. Um, and I sort of knew the ending. Um, I knew every, all the lives would converge at the end. That gives me sort of a cheat, like I know what to do in all the stories. I have to figure out a way how they get there. 
and then how they're all connected was a lot trickier, and that's sort of what informed the structure. Um, but while I was writing it, I just like multivocality in, in, as a reader, and so I wanted to try to do it as a writer. Um, if I knew how messy and it would get, or it ended up getting, um, and how much self-doubt and uncertainty in the middle of writing it, I would have had to go through. I probably would have like tried to do a linear one-person novel, uh, maybe like a crime story or something. <laughs> Um, but was it also fun to get to switch around and embody this perspective and then that perspective and then zoom out in the, like the, the prologue and the interlude? Was that fun? I no? don't think fun is it would ever be one of the words. <laughs> <laughs> well, you always hope novelists are having fun, right? Because you can't imagine it's going to be for money, right? So you just sit down and enjoy yourself, but I guess well, not. Enjoyment could be closer. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's like, it's what I wanted to do. Like, I, I feel fulfilled um, I especially like writing new things, um, and this was like the first year, and I think everything's great that I'm writing, and then I go back to it, and it's horrible. Um, so the not fun part is like getting it to a place where you do feel good about it. That's the big chunk of not fun time. Um, so there's like a little fun, and then not fun work. And then like when you get it to a place where you feel like it's in a good place, it's fulfilling for sure. Um, I'm writing short stories now, and I, I do actually feel like I'm having fun because I don't have to worry about a superstructure, and I, the stories can go in any direction, and uh, that does feel like fun. Mm -hmm. And so your, your next book, will that be a collection of short stories? Yeah. Yeah, that must be nice. Yeah. A nice change of pace. <laughs> uh, we had a question from the audience about uh, the, um, the ending. Uh, the question is, how do you respond to people who say, the book is too sad, or the ending too cruel? I guess we might warn the audience to say now that permission to have spoilers? Is that okay? Oh, wait, 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 wait. I don't wait, know, wait. maybe not. Wait, wait, before you keep going, that doesn't, we're not in spoiler territory yet. Okay. This is still interpretation. Certainly. And that's where I'm gonna go with it. So, this reaction of too sad has been isolated to a very specific reader. So I haven't had a single native person come up to me and talk to me about the ending and it being sad. I actually feel like native people come up to me with a kind of exuberance for being represented and for doing it right and doing it in a contemporary way and telling a story that we don't get represented very well in, you know, we're so often historical um, even movies and books that are coming out now, it's all historical. So I, I wrote this thing to be purposefully feeling like right now and contemporary and interfacing with technology. And um, so sadness does not necessarily, this could be the reader, you can't say it's objectively sad. This is, um, there, there's elements of tragedy, um, but I, I tried to infuse hope in it also. So it's not a spoiler. That's, <laughs> that's a specific reader. Okay. I'll leave out some, some details from certain questions. Anyway. Um, and I did want to ask about, <clears throat> pardon me, I did want to ask about the, um, the prologue and then the interlude because those are two things that you don't see too often 
in novels. And I can imagine editors or, or maybe colleagues in your MFA program, for example, uh, saying, ditch the prologue, ditch the interlude, you don't need this, just show us what the characters are doing and let us make up our own minds about it. Um, I think it works, and I, I enjoyed that part, and I see why it works, but I'm wondering how you came to, to think that, yes, this is necessary, and then, and then fought to make it work. So I wish I could say, like, conceptually, I thought of the whole structure, and I had enough confidence to be like, this is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. That's not what happened. Um, I knew I wanted to write a prologue, because I like the way prologues function in novels and how they can sort of do their own weird thing before the story begins. So I had a 14-page prologue, and my editor was like, nope. And nope, because it's too long? Yeah. yeah. So I cut it in half, and I put it in the, the other half in the middle, and I said, this isn't an interlude. <laughs> and then they loved the idea. <laughs> Um, so that, you know, that, that actually came from an editor saying, like, too long prologue, but she loved the interlude, and, and these many chapters, um, I had been toying around with this idea because we visit all these characters, and we're about to visit new ones, so the interlude has, is a, serves as a stopping point, and then we get these many chapters where you're reminded of who we've already visited before we move on to new characters. And then by the time we get to the end, um, the whole thing's full of many chapters that references all the characters. Mm -hmm. So the structure was born out of um, partly the editors um, saying no, and, and me working with that and trying to figure out a way to make it work mm -hmm. in a way that's friendlier to the reader. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about uh, this book's path to publication? So. Yeah, so I decided I wanted to write in 2005. I wanted to write just in general. I knew I had, a, I had a lot of work to do to catch up to people who, precocious kids who were reading when they were three, um, mm. when I was watching TV. And um, so from 2005 to like 2014, it was all just on my own, writing and reading as much as I could. I quit my job two different times and moved away to uh, the country, different, like to New Mexico and to Oregon. Um, and like waited tables and just did that. Um, but I got into this MFA program and I knew it was the Institute of American Indian Arts where I teach now. Um, I liked the faculty and it was low residency, it was affordable. Um, I also knew that part of the value of an MFA is you're making relationships with people who have access to the publishing world. And if they think your writing is good or if you come out with a good manuscript, you can get access. Like I, I knew that was a possibility. Um, so that ended up happening. Um, one of my teachers was gonna send it to her editor at Norton, just straight to her editor. Um, and so I, I tightened up my manuscript and worked really hard for like two months and then sent it away and then heard nothing. And I figured like, oh, okay, it's, it's what I've always thought it was. Uh, bad, and um, I went to this conference, this writing conference, and another writer heard, I was a fellow there, and another writer heard me read seven minutes from the book, 
and she said, send me your manuscript. I want to send this to my agent. And I didn't know who her agent was. I just the idea of getting an agent sounded amazing. But then heard nothing. Um, and once again, just like, you know, it just affirmed my own self-doubt. And then, and then Trump got in. And the very next day, her and her husband both, so literary people can only do so much. They took it as a call to action. And they both sent my manuscript to their respective agents. And um, three nights later, my, my now agent was up with anxiety. She, um, she's, she's Arab and English, and she, she wanted to leave the country because her mom was sick, and she wasn't sure if she'd get back in. So she was up with anxiety at four in the morning and reading from the different manuscripts that had been sent to her, and she said that my manuscript gave her hope, and in this like very dark time after he'd been elected, and I'm not trying to give too much you know, credit to Trump, but it's very much, <laughs> the success of the book is, is definitely situated within a certain cultural climate and, and a political time, and so she signed me the next day, and um, she sold the book to publishers with the 14-page prologue. Like, that was what she thought was the strongest thing to sell, largely because of the political time that, that it was situated in. I'm not trying to undercut myself too much, but it is, you know, every book exists within its time to some extent. And so um, it, it, uh, when it, there was a whole bidding war, and um, it went to Knopf, and it was, it was a very strange moment where I got a call from Sarah Jessica Parker. Um, <laughs> Tell us about that. <laughs> Set the scene for us. Where were you? So I woke up on a Friday before the Tuesday where it was going to go to auction, and I got a text from my agent saying, um, this is going to be the strangest text I've ever sent, but Sarah Jessica Parker wants to talk to you. And so, you know, I'd just woken up, and I was like, it's one of these moments where I'm like, okay, this is going to be an interesting dream fact to tell my wife when I, when I wake up. <laughs> um, the day went on and I never woke up. And um, I'm at a coffee shop sort of waiting for this phone call to happen. Um, and, you know, I talked to her. I talked to her editor. And she's very gracious and really wants the book. And um, ultimately, between me and my agent and other people that I was talking to at the time, we just decided to go to auction instead. And uh, she was starting a literary imprint under Hogarth, which is under Penguin Random House. There's this whole system of like these giant, like Penguin Random House type publishers that have like 10,000 imprints under them. This is part of like what happened with record labels and all these corporations swallowing all these other businesses and becoming giants with, anyway. <laughs> Is that, just as a side note, like, is that a good thing, a good sign for the publishing industry that someone like Sarah Jessica Parker wants to get in on it? Um, <laughs> Pass? I, I don't know. I mean, sh sh her using her sort of star power to, to promote literary works is a wonderful thing. And I, I'm friends with someone who, whose book she acquired, and it's a terrific book. So. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about um, your, your teaching uh, work. Uh, what do you uh, tell your students, or, or what do you teach to your students to, to 
to help them become the, the best writer they can possibly be. I try to work with um, deconstructing authority being a, a big part of the MFA because you're working with people who have published books and that automatically comes with like, oh, these people have made it sort of feelings. And as a young writer, when you're trying to develop your own voice, you're going to listen to um, people who have published books as the authority on what a good sentence is or what, what a good idea for writing is. And there's a lot of schools of thought around what makes good writing. And none of them are exactly right. There's, there are tools you can give to, for people to put in their toolboxes, but there is no authority on like, this is good writing and this isn't. There are different ways to think about sentences and structures of short stories or novels. So I try to get them to like move past a lot of what comes with working with pu published authors as teachers to retain the, the originality of their own natural voices. That's one of the main things that I try to do. Mm -hmm. And how do you recognize when a student is, is not doing that? Like what, what signs do they show? I, I can't see it because when I work with them, I, I very much deconstruct everything that I say to okay. sort of include that. So I don't know when they go to other teachers, I don't know how much, the, I don't know if it's working. This is just what I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you a little bit about um, Oakland? Um, Oakland seems very much a character in there there. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what Oakland means to you. I mean, it's home. Um, I, I was born there, raised there. Um, I've lived all over different parts of Oakland. I've had experiences. It's just, for me, it's, it's exactly what home is for anybody else growing up and like really fully living in any city or town. And I wanted to represent it in a novel because I've read so many other novels that are place-based novels and I, there weren't that many about Oakland. And there's 10 million New York novels. And um, I just really wanted to like do what those things are doing because I love the place. And that's, this is what home means for, for people. That when you grow up in a place, you come to love it or you hate it and you move away. But I'd happen to love it. And um, I wanted to really like represent what that means to me. Mm -hmm. uh, we got a question about, about spiders. Um, can you talk a little bit about, from the audience, can you talk a little bit about spiders in the leg how is that real? How does that happen? And what significance does that have? I think we get another question about spiders too, to, just to demonstrate how important these spiders are to some audience members. So there is, yeah, there's a spider theme, several characters, um, but the symbolism of the spider legs, um, I can't really say that, there, that that's necessarily a thing that I was doing. I just pulled two spider legs out of my leg is how it ended up in the book with the characters. Um, in 2012 or 13, I pulled two spider legs out of my leg and scoured the internet like the characters do in the book and couldn't find anything. Um, now, with, are you saying like literal spider legs? I or literally that pulled like spider legs? two spider legs out of my leg. Okay. There was a bump on my leg and it sort of got more pokey and then I pulled at those pokes and one leg came out and I put it on tissue paper and another one came out 
And I went to my wife, and I didn't know what to say. And there was blood. And um, so we scoured the internet, wanted to know what was wrong. And it seemed like an Indian thing to me. So I called my dad, and I, I was like, have you heard of this? What, what, do you, what is this? And he said, uh, sounds to me like you got witched. And I was like, hmm? Well, what do we do? And he said, I'll pray for you. <laughs> and that's it. And you're fine. And that's it. And that's, uh, so I had a spider theme, and I have a spider structure, sort of spider web structure to the novel, because these connections start, you know, in a spider web, like the, it's wider and it gets, the connection gets closer and closer and the climax is when it's closest, which is the end. So the structure of the novel is a spider web. Um, and Jackie Redfeather's character has this thing about how a spider's web is both home and a trap. And she relates this to addiction and other things. Um, so it's a tra trap for other, anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't know what to do with it and it freaked me out and um, so I thought, well, if, if, I don't, if I can't do anything with it, I should just give it to my characters, because it seems like something. <laughs> it certainly provoked some concern. <laughs> I was certainly curious about it, too. That was a great question from the audience. Um, since you mentioned Jackie Redfeather, I wanted to ask you something about her. She, I mean, she's not the only character that struggles with alcoholism in your book, uh, but but she, she really struggles. She has a tough time with it. And I wanted to ask you about how you uh, decided to approach the subject of alcoholism in There, There. Given that it's kind of like a stereotype. It, it has been written about before, and I imagined that you wanted to approach it in a, in a different way, and I believe you did, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, so partly it's um, coming from a family who that is a reality my dad and both my sisters. Um, also seeing it in family and community as a very real reality. But the approach I was trying to take, and this happens in the Jackie chapter, is to deconstruct the idea that there's a special relationship between Native people and alcohol, which people have gone so far as to try to like identify a missing enzyme, and that's why we have like a weakness for it. You mean like a, a DNA thing? Yeah. It's, it's just talked about as like, we have a weakness for it sort of thing. And I'm trying to recontextualize why people are doing this. And given circumstances and, and burdens of history, it's like, it's legal, it's cheap, and there are liquor stores everywhere. This is why, and we're coping with stuff that's related to history and, and having certain burdens of history. And you find it in other communities that have um, but for some reason, Native people have been stereotyped as having this specific weakness for it. And that's not the case. It's like, I mean, now I think there's more crystal meth use in Native communities than even alcohol. And that's because it's cheap and it's probably easy to get and, um, and it helps you to cope. And when systematic structural things don't change and when representation doesn't change, we're still gonna need ways to cope, and that's why the, you know. So to not write about the stereotypes and to try to just subvert, like write maybe some positive narrative where you write about like 
successful nerdy natives at Yale or something that could be interesting. It would be an interesting novel, but it's not true to, to the ultimate experience of, of the community. So I wanted to find a way in that felt true and addressed it, but didn't didn't just have it as a as a sort of um, I don't know, just as a prop, as like this is what native life should look like. Here's the alcohol bottle as a prop to to make it look authentic or to make it look like we've heard it look like. But sort of digging into like, well, why, why, as opposed to like, here's the bottle. Is that sort of the same reason why you, you chose to write about urban Native Americans, because it sort of disrupts the stereotype? That and also the contemporary thing, this historical or one way to be Native, definitely was a resistance to, um, to stereotype and to, to the general way that I still see it depicted today and the way people think what an authentic Native person is supposed to look like, sound like, be like. Um, all very much intentional to, to resist this destructive way of seeing a people. Hmm. There is one scene in the book uh, where one of your characters is riding the bus to the powwow in full Indian regalia, and, 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 a, and a white woman starts to, to talk to him, and he's, he's thinking, oh, this, this woman just wants to talk to me because she wants to be able to say later that she had some authentic Indian experience. I thought about this when you were just speaking um, and thinking also about that earlier question about why, why some people view the novel as sad. And I wonder if that's because some white readers will see themselves in that white woman on the bus and say, oh my God, is that what, is that what I'm like? I don't know if that's a question. I just, it's just a thought I had as, as, as you were speaking about that, that, that depending on your perspective, you may, you, may be search, you may be subconsciously searching for what you think is uh, an authentic Indian experience and you may be completely wrong and also kind of offensive. I wish that was more the reaction. I've gotten a lot more like, why'd you do that to us? Sort of like, hmm. like you hurt me. Like I love your book, but Why'd you do that to me? Uh, a lot less self-reflective, like, oh, am I doing something? Am I bringing a white gaze to something that's more nuanced and complex and just saying sad? Um, a lot less self-reflective things have happened. I wish there was more. Uh, we have a question here from an audience member. Do you have any requests or advice for non-native teachers teaching there there? Um, I mean, I think just generally talking about Native life or anything that's non-dominant culture, just try to be the least amount of anthrop anthropological as you can and, and humanize as much as possible and, and find commonality as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And that's true for a lot of different things. I don't think there's any spe anything specific about my book. Anytime you're talking about non-dominant culture, you just don't want to otherize too much and not anthrop you know, get anthropological and like otherwise in a way that's that's dehumanizing in ways that sometimes seems like you're making special momentarily. Um, it's more important to make things feel common and also talk about power structures and power dynamics and what is what is different and why about this particular community. Mm -hmm. and why are we paying attention to it? 
Were there authors in the Native American community that, that you looked up to? I got to the Native canon really late, because um, when I first became a reader, I was noticing that it was like so much about res, reservation experience, and that really isolated me. So I read a lot of work in translation and just followed my own instincts. Um, had no teachers or any education in English, so nobody was telling me this is what you should read. Um, eventually, I read all of the native canon and now love it and, you know, uh, really love Louis Erdrich, probably if I were to say anyone in particular. And there's a lot of great writers writing now, but um, it's not what, what made me want to write initially. Mm -hmm. Where do you see your place in the native canon? I don't know. I don't know. It's, my book's been out less than a year. So it's hard to even say the word canon and think of myself. Um, I ask uh, in part because there, there is much made of your book. Um, apart from the, the glowing reviews, uh, the Paris Review has remarked, for example, that with Sherman Alexie facing sexual harassment allegations, he's sort of being pushed aside now. And since he's dominated for so long, making room for people like you. Um, I didn't know your thoughts on that, on, on feeling like now there is room for someone like you to come and be a new voice for the community. Well, I would, I would hope that the room is not for me, but for a kind of us. Um, I've certainly gotten a lot of attention and the book's selling really well, um, but I like to promote other Native author, uh, authors. Um, there's a lot of amazing writing happening right now in the Native world. and. Um, I, I would certainly never want to be like the replacement for him. Um, so, you know, I try to blurb people's books and promote when I'm asked to write things about what to recommend or when people ask me, I try to have at least a few books. It's a really a question that I'm really bad at answering, but I try my best to like have some books in mind to, to recommend and to, to deflect the idea that um, there's such a thing as Native American voice because there's 576 federally recognized tribes and a bunch more that aren't recognized for bad reasons. And these are all individual languages and, and worldviews and different styles of writing and different experiences in life. And um, the very premise of there being a Native American voice is flawed. So. Um, I try not to think in those terms as much as I can. So you said you're working on short stories now. Will these short stories also be exploring aspects of contemporary Native American life? Yeah, I feel like it's um, sort of an inseparable part of my writing process. Basically, like if, if I'm not writing through my experience, if I sort of have a narrator that never references where that narrator comes from, it's automatically a white man. Like women have had to do this for a long time. If you just write like a general narrator, because of the history of literature, everyone thinks of a white man. Um, so you sort of, it's a burden and it can be clumsy to try to have to include it, but you do have to include it for it to be a representative voice from the specific place that you're coming from, that you're writing from. 
So I try to find ways to do it in ways that are interesting um, and w that are exciting to me. Like I just, the story that I was referencing that I finished at McDowell is written from a 13-year-old boy who's asked to write a letter to Amerigo Vespucci, who's the America's namesake. And he was like a very mediocre, like not a very good navigator. And he's, he was a pimp and a jeweler and like a banker. And he's not very, he's, he's very much representative of, of the American spirit. Um, <laughs> but this little boy is like sort of, he's, he knows his mom's native and his dad's Ita like half Italian, half French. And he sort of like has some anger at Amerigo and has an experience with a bully. And he like calls uh, Amerigo uh, like a pirate, which he calls a boat criminal. And he's like equating him to the bully and this whole drama plays out. Um, so, you know, it's included, but it's doing it in totally different ways than, than the novel was doing it. Well, fans of There There, I think, are already looking forward to reading that. I certainly am. Tommy Orange, thank you very much for speaking with me. I yes, really appreciate you. it. The Music Hall's executive producer is Patricia Lynch. New Hampshire Public Radio's interim executive director is Mark Kaplan. And HPR's digital and broadcast producer is Sarah Plour. The Music Hall's production manager is Jana Morris. The Music Hall's live sound and recording engineer is Jason Martin. The music director and band is Bob, Lord, and Dreadnought. The Music Hall's literary coordinator is Brittany Wasson. David J. Murray of Clear Eye Photo took photos this evening, and you can see photos later on at his website, cleareyephoto.com. I'm Peter Biello of NHPR. Thank you very much for coming to Writers on a New England Stage. Thank you all. Thank you.